John chapter number 3, verse 16. Many of you are already there. Of course, this is uh, week number 3 uh, that we on Sunday morning have uh, taken our text from John three sixteen, And uh, what began is just a thought uh, that I brought one Sunday is turned into this little series now. And I know uh, that I'll bring uh, one or at least two more probably uh, in this from this text that the Lord put on my heart out of John three sixteen. I'm also going to let you know I'm going to be reading from Revelation. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture this morning, and I'll not wait on you to turn there because of the, the amount of Scripture. But towards the end of the message, I am going to want you to turn to Revelation uh, chapter number 20, and I'm going to want you to turn to Philippians chapter number 4. Uh, so if you want to, uh, if you think you can find that quickly, uh, then you can wait to mark your place. If you want to go ahead and be marking your place, we'll get to that, and uh, we'll look at John 3.16. Let me remind you about uh, the service tonight, and of course, while you're finding your places, I'll mention Sunday school again, and just in case somebody is wondering or thinking it, I'm not moving up to 9.30 so that I have longer to teach. Uh, it is because of all the fellowship and different things that we'll be incorporating in, uh, So, but uh, we'll have look forward to a good time. I'm excited about uh, getting our Sunday school program back on uh, line, back on the way we've been doing it. John chapter 3 and verse 16, of course, you know the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel in one verse, the most famous verse in the Bible, the most well-known verse in the Bible, uh, the verse that seems to show up uh, literally everywhere, John three sixteen. Two weeks ago, I brought a message from John 3.16 on the significance of John 3.16. Of course, the significance of John 3.16 is not that it's the most famous verse. It's, it's the love of God. For God so loved. If God did not love us the way He loves us, we would be without hope. Uh, we would have nothing to look forward to but eternal damnation for our sins. Last week, I spoke on the penalty found in John 3.16, and we looked at that word perish, to be lost eternally. And this morning, I want to focus uh, on the last two words of John 3.16, specifically the word life, but have everlasting life. Uh, There's a penalty in John 3.16, and because of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do not have to experience that penalty. Because of that we get to look forward to everlasting life. Now, there's a lot of confusion about life. There's a lot of confusion about the afterlife. And this morning, I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture. Now, this will, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear the way for you to be saved, have your sins forgiven, and for you to not perish but have everlasting life. If you're saved this morning, you've already trusted Christ as your Savior, you're going to be reminded once again of the love of God, once again what Christ has truly done for us. And you're going to get a lot of uh, doctrine uh, this morning. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture that should uh, even give more clarity to our wonderful salvation. So I will read a lot of references if you want to jot them down. Then at the end, there's two places I'll have us turn to. But this morning, I want to preach on... Life described in John 3.16. There's life, but then there's the life that's talked about in our passage of Scripture. Uh, I'm very interested in the life that is described in John 3.16. 
when we're promised everlasting life, there's a whole lot that that means. There's a whole lot that does not mean. And this morning, I believe we'll get an answer from the Word of God. Father, I pray as we go to the Word of God, may uh, the Spirit of God begin to work in our hearts even now. If there's one unsaved, they're lost uh, because they don't have Christ, may they realize that there is a penalty uh, for not having Christ. There is a penalty for our sin. There's a penalty for not looking and depending on Him. And Father, I pray this morning that those that are the redeemed, those that are the saved, those that uh, have experienced Your love, may uh, we be reminded of what You have done for us. May we be reminded of the eternity we have to look forward to. I pray Your will will be done this morning, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That word life is a wonderful life, a wonderful word. There's a lot to be said. There's a lot that is said about life. I'm thankful for life. God is the giver of life. But to give full context and clarity to life, we must look at what God says in John chapter 3, verse 16. Those that, that because He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him, they should not perish, which is important, but have everlasting life. That word everlasting gives a lot of clarity to the kind of life that we have in Jesus. Wouldn't it be a, a, an unfulfilled life to believe that this was all there was to it? Wouldn't it be a life without hope? Wouldn't it be a life of, I understand why, why those that don't have Christ are easy to be depressed and easy to be afraid because this is all life is to them. But that word everlasting life, that word everlasting means lasting or enduring forever, eternal, existing or continuing without end, immortal. Think about the promise that God gives those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're giving, we, we have a promise of life that lasts and endures forever. It is eternal life. It is life that exists or continues without end. It is an immortal life. How we as humans fear death, but we are told in Scripture that because of the love of God, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christian should not fear death because our life is everlasting. It's never-ending. I want this morning, I want to talk to you about the life described in John 3.16. Not this life we see every day, because you just have to be halfway conscious going through this life to see all the problems, to see all the difficulty, to see all the tragedy and the heartache and, and just the most uh, unbelievable and vile things. I'm not talking about this life of disappointment. I'm not talking about this life of, of, of dead ends. I'm not talking about the life we see every day. We live in this life and death is a very real word and it's a real part of our life. In this life, we understand death. In this life, we understand separation because of death. I'll not have you raise your hand, but I would be surprised if there was somebody in this room who's never been to a funeral. Because life, death is part of this life. But I'm not talking about this life. I'm talking about 
eternal life. I'm talking about everlasting life. I'm talking about a life that will not end. I'm talking about an immortal life. I'm talking about the everlasting life described in John chapter 3, verse 16, that is the gift of God through His only begotten Son. I'm going to make four statements <coughs> this morning that I believe are going to give us a better understanding and, and a more of an uh, acute awareness of this everlasting life that God has promised us. Because how many of you are saved this morning on your way to heaven? If you're saved this morning, you should not be discouraged. You should not be defeated. Why? Because we have the promise of life that will never end. You may say, Pastor, I'm facing uh, my own mortality, only this flesh. But according to the Word of God, we are more alive after that word death than before. Everlasting life. If we're going to truly understand the life described in John 3.16, number one, we must look at life in the context of eternity. It is a dangerous and defeated way of living for a Christian to look at the temporal and not the eternal. So we must look at life not in the context of this we see here, but in the context of eternity. And quite frankly, too many Christians only look at life in the temporal manner. Their goals are determined by that which is temporal. Their schedule is determined by that which is temporal. Their decisions are made by that which is temporal. This world looks at this which is here, and they never consider life in the context of eternity. That word eternity is mentioned one time in the Bible. It's found in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one. Any idea who that is? For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. We can take definitions out of dictionaries and try and describe eternity. We can come up with our own description of eternity. But let me give you a Bible description of eternity. It is the habitation of God. Where does God dwell in eternity? What is eternity? where God dwells. He's always been. He always will be. Eternity is measured by the, the habitation of God. See, when we look at life, we must look at it in the context of eternity. Eternity is the habitation of God. Uh, I, as you know, I, I enjoy reading history and and uh, I, I, you read these books of, of these great historical figures of time past, and there's something in common with all of them. You can read of their date of birth, and you can read of their date of death. It is a period in our history. But when I read of God, I read in the beginning God. He was there when all of this began. When I read of God, He's the one who's always been. He is eternity. What is eternity, Pastor? The best definition I can give you, and if you think on it for a while, you might get a little bit of a headache trying to grasp it with this, this finite mind that you have. It's where God dwells. 
He's always been. So if we're going to look at life from God's point of view, as he describes in John 3, 16, we must look at it not in our, from our date of birth to our date of death. We must look at it in the context of eternity. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Man in his flesh will die, but there's an after. You can go to any cemetery and you can walk around and you can read the grave markers. There's an after for every body placed in the ground. Because every man has an appointment. We dread the appointment. But we must consider the after that takes place. The after that comes when the, when the death occurs. Luke chapter 16, as we looked at more closely last week, reminds us of the rich man who woke up, and the Bible says he lifted up his eyes in hell. And Lazarus, that beggar, who is described as with Abraham. These are two men who died, and in that instant, they woke up in the after. One in hell, one with Abraham. The Bible tells us they were two distinct places. They weren't lost in the afterlife. They weren't caught in between. The after death, there's a judgment. And Luke 16 describes two real places. Hebrews 12.1 reminds us of something. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, there are those who have gone on before us who are now in a real place and they're part of the cloud of witnesses watching us run our race. There is life after the Bible never describes those that have experienced death as lost souls, lost spirits, uh, wondering where they are. No, there is real life after death. This is the life that which takes place after death. We, we make the mistake, and so many in this world are blinded because they think this is all there is. No, the Bible reminds us our life is a vapor, it's here and it's gone. So what is, this is all there is, though, there's life after. So if we're fully going to understand life described in John 3, 16, we must look at life in context of eternity because that's how God looks at life. Statement number two, to understand life, we must define death. To fully understand how much life means to us and what life really is, we must define what death is. On the surface, someone may say, well, it's when your life ends. No, that's not how the Bible describes death. If we're really going to appreciate the life God has given us here on this earth, we must fully be aware and understand death. For example, when someone is young, the younger you are, it seems like you have the less 
appreciation for your life because death seems so far away. And it's harder to appreciate that which you don't fully understand. It's a natural thing. Likewise, for the child of God, if we are really going to understand life from God's perspective, we must understand death from God's perspective. Romans chapter number 5 verse 12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This is speaking of the first death. This is a death man will experience because of sin, the Bible tells us. Adam, that first man, sinned, and so that first man passed down that sin nature to every man since then. And there's a penalty for that sin. We are told of that penalty in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So because Adam passed down death, passed, because of his sin, passed down sin, he passed down death. The wages, the payment of sin is death. But I'll get more to that in just a moment because it's more than a physical death. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. The most important part about that verse of Scripture, the most important part to remember about that first man, Adam, is not the fact that he was what God fashioned him like out of dust. I wonder what he looked like. I don't know. But the important part is God breathed life into him. And the Scripture is very clear to tell us that when he did, he became a living soul. He was not just a body formed of dust. What is important there is that when God gave life, he became a living soul. So keep in mind and follow me this morning because this is very, very important. To understand life, we must understand death. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That's the first death. See, physical death is not the end. We, we live in this world, and sometimes even Christians fail to grasp this concept. Or we get clouded by our grief. We get clouded by the doom. And certainly no one likes to experience losing someone they love very much. But the Bible tells us that first death is not the end. That physical death is not all there is to it. I, probably like you, have talked to many people. You ask them, what, what, what do you think you're going to go when you die? What's going to happen after you die? And they'll tell you nothing. That's, all it is is here, and then it's the end. Like we don't exist anymore. That is so far from the truth. That's a lie of the devil. Physical death is not the end. So, Pastor, what is it? It is the separation of man's soul from his body. God fashioned man out of dust, that first man, Adam. God breathed life. It could not have life on its own. God breathed life into man, into Adam. 
He became a living soul. When Adam died, it was not the end of Adam. That death, because of sin, separated his soul, his life, from his dust, from the body. And the same is true today. Physical death is not the end. So if we're truly going to understand life, we must define death. And we, we see it beginning to, to unfold in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That is not just speaking of the first death. That is speaking of the second death. The first death is the death of this flesh. It's the death of this body. But there is an eternal soul that lives in each and every one of us. It is who we are. And in Romans 6.23, we're told of the second death. And I'll read in Revelation chapter number 20, and I'm going to have you turn here a little bit later if you haven't already have it marked. We're going to look at this passage again. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 11. I read this passage last week as well, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things. Who are the dead? Those who died the first death, which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead, those who died the first death, which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The first death is when our soul is separated from our body. It is the end of this flesh. It is the, 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 the destruction that sin brings forth in us. So now with this corruption, our soul one day is going to leave our body. Romans chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, we have an account in Scripture that describes the second death. It is just, it, and let me remind you, when I said the first death, when somebody takes their last breath in this life, it is not the end. It, it is not over. We've already seen examples in Scripture. There's different places that are beyond this. After our life, there's a judgment. We are going to be somewhere. So it's a separation of our soul from our body. The second death described in Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15 is very clear. Death and hell are going to be cast into that eternal lake of fire for eternity. So just like the first death is not the end, the second death is not the end. You don't stop existing after the first death. You don't stop existing after the second death. You will continue to exist, those without Christ, as separated, man separated from God for all of eternity. But make no mistake about it. After those who rejected Christ are cast into that horrible lake of fire, they will continue to languish and burn and suffer for all of eternity. They will be separated from God from all of eternity. So this is important for us to understand if we're truly going to value 
everlasting life, we need to make sure that we are properly defining death as the Bible defines death. Yes, all of us, if Christ doesn't call us home and the rapture doesn't take place, every one of us will take our last breath on this side of eternity. But if I take my last breath tomorrow, that is not the end of Greg Neal. It is really just the beginning of my life because eternity is where God habitates. It's that the, the, there, there is no time. There is no beginning. There is no end. But those without Christ, they will face not just the first death, but the second death. That's why, as a child of God, I don't fear death because I know I will not face the second death. And if I had the audience of this world who were lost without Christ, I would say you better not fear death. You better not fear taking your last breath on this side of eternity. You better not fear that, but you better fear the second death because that is when you will be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. It will be a separation from God forever. Everlasting life sounded pretty good, didn't it? John chapter 3 and verse 36 tells us this. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. Well, wait a minute. If they're alive, how can they not see life? Uh, but the wrath of God abideth on him. They'll not see everlasting life. They will face death, and then they face the second death. So if you and I are truly going to understand the everlasting life that is spoken of in John 3.16, we must be reminded and correctly define death. The second death is not the end either. It is eternal suffering for all of eternity. With this in mind, I don't understand. I can never understand why somebody would choose. Choose this fate. Every man that faces that second death is because they chose it. Well, well, I think that, that, that I'm okay because of this. I'm not risking the second death based on what I think. I want to go to the Word of God, which tells me that I may know that I have eternal life. I don't want to go through this life wondering what's going to happen after I die. I don't want to wonder, uh, go through life saying, I hope I did enough to make sure that, that I don't face this. No, friend, I want that everlasting life. Everybody wants the life, but you better look at it in context to the second death. We must properly define death. Now, number three, you cannot separate life from its source. You cannot separate life from its source. God is life. God is the giver of life. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. What did He do? He gave the opportunity for everlasting life. Otherwise, it was not available. That's why uh, abortion is such a ridiculous argument. It's, it's, it's barbaric, it's murder, and the defense is we have a right to decide who lives and dies. You aren't the giver of life. 
No man is the giver of life but God. Because you cannot, but don't dare bring God into that argument. But I'm here to tell you, you can't separate life from the source that gives it. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This one verse of Scripture, this one verse of Scripture, literally unravels and destroys every false teaching and every false doctrine that exists. You take it, you name it, from, from Islam to, 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 to uh, Mormonism to Catholicism, and you can go all the way down the list to, to, to baptismal regeneration, to work salvation, to you can go all the way down the list. All of them exclude Christ as the way, the truth, the life. There's but one way to get to the Heavenly Father. It's not through any church, including the Baptist church. It's through Jesus Christ. He said He's the way. I'm sorry. There's no, Joseph Smith is not the way. Constantine is not the way. The Pope is not the way. Muhammad is not the way. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. Well, if he's the truth, what are all those others? And the life. If he's the way of life, what is the way of every other way? It is death. You cannot, there is not two ways of life. There's a way of life and a way of death. Jesus is the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Every person who escapes the second death will do so because they went through Jesus. When all the dead are called up as we read, and they're going to give account of their works. Guess who's not given an account of their works? You can testify for yourself, but I'll testify for me this morning. Not me. Because when God says, let me check the account of Greg Neal, he sees perfection. Not because I've lived a perfect life, but because I put my trust in his perfect son. And his account is applied to my account. And I'll never have to give an account for my sin. I'll never have to give an account for my works. But those who try to go another way, God does not accept another way. You cannot. Well, well there's so many in this world that would say, well, I, I trust this and I trust this. Let me remind you what I said number three. You cannot separate life from its source. God is the source. Jesus said, I am the life. John 6, 68, after many turned and left Christ, and Jesus asked his disciples, will you also go away? Verse 68, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Can I tell you, friend? There's, there, there's something that's important. It's everlasting life. It's the after. 
when we meet our appointment. And Jesus is the life. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus is speaking and he says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. That's okay if, not really okay, but if you, you choose to put your faith in an ideology of a man who died, if you choose to put your faith in the ideology of man's religion who is dead, I, decide, I have decided personally, and I trust that many, if not all of you have, to put your faith in the one who holds the keys of death. You cannot go another way. He said, I am he that liveth and was dead. He conquered death. Remember when I said in Romans 5, chapter number 12, that we're all going to die because of sin? It's passed down. We all are going to face the first death, and we all have the second death as our future unless we look to Jesus who holds the keys, who has conquered death. He gave his life on the cross of Calvary and then three days later was resurrected and is alive forevermore. John chapter 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. So, we're told in John 3, 16, that if we believe on the only begotten Son, we don't perish, we're not eternally lost, but have everlasting life. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Jesus is the source. Jesus is the key to passing from death unto life. I think back to when I got saved. I think back, I was just a couple months shy of my fifth birthday. And, and yes, kids can get saved and do get saved. And I've been saved ever since then. As a matter of fact, I think it's the best time for somebody to be saved is when they're young. But I can think back, and I don't remember the words of the prayer I prayed because I believe I'd already given my heart. But as a child... The only thing I had to look forward to was a first death and a second death. But when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I passed from death unto life. Because, friend, life is not defined by what we see down here. Life is not defined, according to the Word of God, by the tears and by all of the heartache and the tragedy. When this ends down here, there's a... Eternal life. Let me say statement number four, and I'll use the rest of my time here. 
everlasting life is for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Everlasting life isn't just for those who want it. I believe there's a lot of people who want everlasting life. But some of these same people aren't willing to do what is necessary to have it. To humble themselves. To accept by faith what Jesus has done. Who wouldn't like the idea of escaping eternal damnation? Who wouldn't like the idea of not giving account for our sins? Everlasting life is not for those who just say, I claim it. It's not for those who say, well, I believe I'm going to have it. Everlasting life is for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Turn with me to Revelation chapter number 20. We've already been there once. We'll look there again. And in verse number 12, we are told that God has books. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. There is a book of life where all of the names of the redeemed are there. There's the book of works where if your your name is not in one book, you're judged out of your own works. If your name is written down, you'll never be judged by your own works. So we're told that God has books. That same verse of Scripture tells us that those who have not accepted the way to the truth and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be judged by their works. What are their works? Everything they've ever done. Everything they've ever thought. Uh, You think about that. There are those who think there are some things buried so far deep that nobody ever knows about it, but unless they choose Christ, they're going to be judged by it. Revelation chapter 20, same chapter, verse 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is very clear. If you understood nothing else about the Scripture, but yet you understood that there's a God who means what He says, He says in verse 15, If your name's not written in the book of life, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's easy to understand. If I had never, if I'd only seen John 3.16 and Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15, I believe the logical conclusion I would come to is that there's something here I better know, and I don't want to be cast into the lake of fire. I may not know what that book of life is, but I need to find out what it is so that my name can be written down there. Because if whosoever name is not there... God has established forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's established. They will die that second death, be cast into the lake of fire. This is why Philippians chapter number 4, if you have that marked, and verse number 3 gives us some context and some clarity. Because 
I want to know that I'm there. Outside of the book of Revelation, this is the only time the book of life is mentioned. The Apostle Paul is, is writing to Christians in Philippi, the Philippians, in the book of Philippians. He says in verse number 3 of Philippians chapter number 4, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with others, my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, a, 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 even a casual study of the book of Philippians will remind you that this is a book written to believers. This is a book written to Christians. Verse number one of the same chapter, Therefore, my brethren, these are those who are saved. The apostle Paul was preaching a gospel Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is that gospel? The death, the burial, the resurrection. This is what Paul was preaching. This is where Paul had the conflicts with the religious leaders because it was the gospel of Christ. As we've seen even on Wednesday nights in our, in our, Bible, in our series on Wednesday night, Paul was not wasting any time when it came to the gospel. And there's some very clear things he says. He says, Whose names are in the book of life? He mentions true yoke fellow. Labor with me in the gospel. These are those who are believers. These are those who have put their faith in the gospel. Not the old way of the law of the, of the Judaizers, not the ways of the pagans of that day, but in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are those who have been converted. These are those who are the brethren. So these that are saved, Paul says, another way of describing them besides the brethren, in the gospel, fellow laborers, true not false, true yoke fellow, is, are those that are written in the Lamb's book of life. It would be as if I preached this morning and say, I want to preach to all the Christians this morning. Another way of saying that, and it would mean the same, I want to preach to all those this morning whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because you are not a Christian as the Bible defines you. You are not saved as the Bible defines saved without your name being written in the Lamb's book of life. I used the illustration earlier of when I got saved as a child. In that moment, in that instant, my, my spirit, my soul was made alive. In that instant, uh, my, I was consecrated by the Spirit of God. I was in the Father's hand and no man could pluck me out of His hand. In that instant, there was a name recorded in heaven. Not just written in some casual place, but the book of life was opened. And my name was written down. And can I tell you, it's been there ever since. And can I tell you, for all of eternity, it'll still be there. Because as a child of God, my name is written in the book of life. So friend, this morning, this world may look at you and say, you have failed in this life. They may look at you and say, oh, the dedication to that God you serve, the dedication to that church you belong to, what has it gotten you? Friend, don't look at what's going on down here. Understand the everlasting life that we have through Jesus Christ. 
those whose names are written in the book of life. It doesn't matter if your name is written in the front of the family Bible that sits on your coffee table. It matters, though, if it's written in the book of life. It doesn't matter if your name is written on a baptismal certificate. It does matter, though, if your name is written in the book of life. It doesn't matter if your name is written on the roll of the Emmanuel Baptist Church or any other church. But it matters whether or not your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The saved or whose name is written there. Revelation chapter number 13, I'm going to read, if if you're still in Revelation, I'm again reading a verse number 1, and I'm going to read down to verse number 8. I'm going to make this point, and I'll move very quickly as we come to the conclusion of the message. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, verse 1 of Revelation 13 is what I'm reading, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast, or the Antichrist, which I saw, was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of the bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. I saw one of the heads as it was wounded to death, and his deadly wound, and his deadly wound was healed, and the, wound, the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given, over, given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Think about that. They're all going to worship him. Whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation gives us an idea of what's going to take place during the tribulation. Uh, We're all going to be raptured. The church is going to be raptured out. So many things are going to take place. The Satan is going to be given his domain. The Antichrist is going to rise, and everybody's going to fall right in line, and God's going to allow that he's going to be able to overcome the saints. Every nation, every group of people will be under his control, and the Bible says they will all worship him except those whose names are written in the book of life. Those pesky Christians, those pesky redeemed, will not worship him because they worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the point I really want to make here is there's a distinction, once again, between those whose names are written down and those whose names are not. Revelation chapter number 21, uh, 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 21 we'll end here in verse, in verse number 27. And there shall in no wise enter into anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those that are in heaven, they will be there because their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Verse number 1 of chapter 21, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he, which dwell with, he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God's going to wipe away all the tears. Behold, I make all things new. Verse 6, he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. We will enter into that place, verse 22, and I saw no temple therein. The Lord God Almighty of the Lamb or the temple of it, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon for sh- to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. What a place! And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall not a place like that can have no sin. Because in verse 27, And there shall no wise enter into it anything that defileth, either whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. But they, meaning only they, which are written, in the Lamb's book of life. Very quickly, you know what that tells me? That tells me that when I face that physical death, if the church is not raptured out, I will face that physical death. It means I'm going to leave this old flesh behind. My soul is going to be separated from my body, from this dust, and I'm going to get a glorified body. I'm going to get one that doesn't sin. I'm going to get one that doesn't break down. I'm going to have knees that don't creak as I get older. I'm going to have a new body. How do I know that? Because my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And according to God, the only ones that will be allowed in there are those names who are written because there will be no defiling. Everlasting life. Verse number 7 of chapter 22. Behold, I come quickly. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have ever Lasting life. We are more alive. The child of God is more alive when we leave this flesh than while we wear it. It's everlasting life. Pastor, do you fear death? No. Death separates us, it does but it'll just be a short while. But for eternity, everlasting life. Uh, Make sure this morning that you have it. You have it. You know the greatest assurance 
that I could give my family? I have life insurance, and I believe you ought to have life insurance. But if something were to happen to me today, for my wife, for my kids, for my family, if they had to look at a lifeless body to look and say, I'll see you again. And when I see you again, it's going to be different than when I saw you before. I'll never see you grasp for a breath. I'll never see you in my imperfection and your imperfection. I'll see you again. Everlasting life. And when we experience that everlasting life, there'll never be a separation again. For all of eternity, that place where God inhabits, for all of eternity, we're going to be together. And then likewise, though, I cannot think of anything more cruel for somebody to do to their loved ones, to leave them without assurance of knowing where they are in their eternity. And, and, and the, the, the cruelty to leave behind a spouse with them wondering if they'll ever see them again. Them wondering if they're ever going to look upon them again. Not knowing if they're in that place called hell. Not knowing if they're in that place called heaven. How cruel this morning if you're not for certain you're saved on your way to heaven. You will face that second death. But don't leave your family behind wondering, will I ever see them again? I don't like to perform, to officiate funerals. I cannot imagine, and I've had to do this without offering this comfort. But the thing as a pastor, knowing that I have to comfort somebody under grief, the thing that I hold on to is that I can remind them of a comfort. You'll see them again. The goodbye is just temporary. It's just for a short time. And when you see them again, you're going to see that they're more alive than they've ever been in that everlasting life. The life described in John 3.16, the everlasting life, is a pretty amazing life. If it was just compared, and obviously it is compared to the death, it would be much, much better. But it's so much more than that, because we're going to live in a place where the Lamb lights the city. We're going to live in a place where the king of the city is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, you'll not have to worry about anything coming in that city that might lower the property value. You'll not have to worry about anything coming in that city that's going to change the neighborhood because only those that are written in that Lamb's book of life There'll be nothing that defiles. There'll be nothing that can take away from the perfection that is of that city. I want to make the most of my dash. My date of birth to my date of death. 
I want to make the most of that for my Lord. But when I face that time, hopefully many, many, many years in the future, don't know or know this morning that if you're saved, you'll see me again. And as I, as a pastor, often comfort those who have a loved one that go on before them and say, you'll see them again. I I can't help it, but the next Sunday when I walk out and I see an empty seat, I'm reminded that death, physical death, has taken somebody from among us. The day's going to come, we're going to gather together to worship our Savior. And all the redeemed will be there. We'll all be reunited. Do you have that everlasting life this morning? If you do, rejoice in it. I hope this morning gives you a little more clarity of what it actually is. The importance of it. Live this life like you have everlasting life. If you don't know this morning that you're saved, if you've been putting your faith in something else, I've given you clear, clear direction from the Scripture this morning. You must believe on Him to have that everlasting life. Father, I pray this morning that you use the message. Father, I don't don't know... Each man here is eternal standing with you. And Father, I, I have no reason to believe there's somebody here not saved. But Father, they know based on what they're depending on. This morning, 